0: Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today we have a conversation on Jesus' parable about the lost son.
1: We have uh, two of our northern students who are involved with me in a, a writing project on the parables of Jesus called Imagine a World Like This. The two students are Austin Holmes and Josh Moore. Austin is from Minneapolis, where I wonder today if he has the same weather we have. Are you cold and snowy?
2: Pretty much always.
1: Not so <laughs> bad today, though. Yeah, we've got, it's starting to warm up a bit, I think, and tomorrow it's supposed to rain And in the 40s, so maybe the snow will melt. And Josh Moore is from Oklahoma. Then I met Josh in um, Hawaii, in in Waikiki, where he was on staff at Pac Rim, Pacific Rim University or college. And um, Josh has accepted the position as the admissions uh, person at Northern Seminary and is also along with Austin in our Master of Arts in New Testament Studies, a program that is shaped to help uh, people teach in the church. So part of our project, I think we can learn to communicate in the church better by learning to write for the church rather than just for uh, our professors or some kind of academy where we write prose that no one else can understand, especially not our moms and dads. And so... Uh, We're working on parables, and and I'd like to say a few things about how parables work, and then we're going to have a conversation with Austin and Josh about one of the great parables of the Bible, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son there in Luke chapter 15. Parables sometimes are taken to be unfortunate stories, Uh, that illustrate a theological truth and once you find the theological truth you can dispense with the story but we have increasingly learned in biblical studies largely as a result of people who are skilled in literary analysis and in reading novels and other literature that stories do things that uh, let's say theological writings or epistles do not do and cannot do and so the stories of Jesus, the parables, are invitations to readers to exercise their imagination. And Jesus' parables are um, surrounded by and held up by his vision of the kingdom of God. And there's much to be said about the kingdom of God, but we won't talk about it now. But the the, the kingdom of God is Jesus' central vision. And the parables of Jesus can be said to be an attempt by Jesus, successfully I believe, to get people to imagine a world like this, to imagine a world where kingdom realities begin to shape our realities. So Jesus, by telling a parable, invites people into the story. They listen and they wonder and they get caught in the web of what he's saying And they never know where that story is going to end, so they don't know what Jesus is going to do with them and to them by the time the story is over. And this parable of the prodigal son is a favorite one, largely because as a story it works very well. But at the same time, there are surprising bits in this story that communicate what Jesus wants us to imagine. So I'm going to begin by asking Josh Moore a question of what he thinks the central analogy or the point of the parable uh, is, uh, as Jesus incites people to imagine this kingdom reality. So, Josh, how do you think this? Uh, how do you think this parable works, or what, what's it? What's it trying to say to us?
3: Well, it's uh, a great question. So, this story, um, Jesus is taking you into this world that you're. That you're familiar with, you're familiar with some of these terms that he's talking about. You're familiar with some of the customs, um, like uh, like the son that left. He's just, he's forbidden from, but from the Jewish law, from uh, taking care of swine. But yet he does that at the lowest point in his life before he returns home. Yeah, you, um, yeah, Good You point. see, you see the father doing something that he's not supposed to do. He's supposed to be. He's running towards his son, who's t- taken his inheritance share and came back after he squandered it all because he was he was eating what the pigs were leaving behind the the father in the story he's running towards his younger son and this was a, a very shameful thing to show your legs uh, it would be, to appear so undignified and now what the father's doing here when the son returns is he's replacing the stu- the son to his original status. He's showing that he's above the slaves, even though he was acting as a slave when he was gone. He's putting his slaves to put the shoes back on his son, restoring his status. Hmm. Now, the interesting part of this story is that the the father is forgiving the son before he confesses what he did was wrong. So the father is fully embracing him at that point. Hmm. Now, the shift of the story is um, whenever he's holding this banquet banquet for the son that was gone, the shift comes when the older son, who's been faithful to his father the entire time, refuses to join in on the celebration. Now, this is the very interesting part because he's been with his dad the entire time, yet he's ungrateful at the celebrations that's going on. Now, the deeper part of this story is that God is celebrating when people come back to him, and that people that are with him should be equally joyous in the occasion when people come home to God.
1: So, Josh, so you think the parable, the central idea is that we are to imagine a world where God throws parties when people return to him in repentance and find his love and grace? Yes, very much so. And um, would you say that we are also to imagine a world where even the worst of sinners, do you think, do you think by saying that this younger son, who's often a stereotype of a, a pain in the neck, uh, to use uh, Christian words, um, do you think that he's a stereotype of sort of the worst of sinners or imaginable sinners in the Jewish world?
3: I would very much say you're right on point with that assessment because when you're looking at the two parables before this and also the, the introduction that Jesus that uh, Luke gives yeah. in this section, he's talking about the Pharisees who are wondering why Jesus is eating with these sinners. And each three of these parables are given an explanation to why God rejoices in these things because they're his people. And though even though you've been lost, God rejoices with you when he finds you. And there's also a contrast to um, the Pharisees there. the kind of you can kind of put a portray on the older son as the Pharisees in the story that uh, they've been with God the entire time. they're God's chosen people but he's they don't understand it this at the same time. That their original mission as a nation of Israel was to be a blessing to other nations. And that they're supposed to be inviting people in to worship their God as a kingdom. So I think they're missing the point is that when God is celebrating for other people, he wants that for all of his people. He, that was the reason why Israel existed in the first place.
1: Yeah, and let me, uh, Josh, I want to read that because I think it's frequently forgotten that this parable is incited at a dinner setting or probably in the evening uh, when, and this is how Luke sets it up in Luke 1 through two. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. This is is a stereotype, you know, tax collectors and sinners. I mean, in other words, all the wrong people in the Jewish society, the people who were uh, disrespectful of Jewish law Um, who represented Rome, uh, who therefore were taxing the daylights out of, of Israel, and the Galileans, who were poor and suffering. So he uses those sorts of people. They were gathering around to hear Jesus. So Jesus is attracting the wrong sorts of people, but the right sorts of people. Everybody recognizes the significance of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or the scribes. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So so it starts with a stereotype, and Jesus plays with stereotypes. He wasn't afraid of stereotypes. And so the Pharisee in this parable becomes the person who uh, does not understand why Jesus is so welcoming to tax collectors and sinners. Um, and Josh, you, you made a connection here that was interesting in your discussion of the significance of the parable, which I think you've, uh, you've explained very well, and I think, I think you're getting to the central point of this parable, that I want to ask Austin, because that last part of the parable can be very confusing and surprising, because I think each one of us expects Jesus to uh, swat the older son or have the father swat the older son on the head. But this father is not like most fathers. Um, He's not like the stereotype father who disciplines the disobedient child, the disobedient younger son. So, Austin, how, how would you explain the presence of the older son who gets angry because the father has done so much good generosity for the younger son?
2: When I think about this parable, I and as I was reading about it, I just was so fascinated by the character of the elder son. So I'm actually really excited to talk about it. Um, and I think it really needs to be understood in light of the beginning of Luke chapter 15. Um, in his book, uh, Stories with Intent, uh, Snodgrass says that uh, this parable in this really unique and and. Awesome way contrasts the attitude of the father character with the attitude of the elder son toward the repentant. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, I just what I'm seeing there is like there's just this I don't know, there's this really powerful element of um, almost a a resentfulness happening in this elder son's character. He comes out of the field and you know his younger his uh, younger brother who has been given shoes and this robe uh, and he's being celebrated and he, he comes out of the field and there's dancing and there's rejoicing and uh, he is complaining um, and uh, he uh, you know effectively says you've never celebrated me uh, to the father and um, Nowen wrote a book on the prodigal son and. Um, there's this, he has this really interesting quote where he says that, um, you know, this elder son has been working really hard on the father's farm, but has never fully tasted the joy of being at home. And I think that really cuts deep when I think about, you know, the character of this elder son, especially when you see kind of, as you pointed out, Scott, the way that the father then interacts with the elder son, he doesn't say, you know, how dare you think about your younger brother this way or anything like that. He just says, you've always been with me and everything I have is yours. I think that's really powerful for us to realize like that the grace is extended both ways, especially if we begin making connections between uh, the sinners and the Pharisees. Jesus isn't uh, putting one down and raising one up. He, he's extending that grace both ways. Uh, and I think that's really beautiful And redemptive uh, for for us now, uh, and especially in understanding Jesus's heart here in this parable as well.
1: Well, here's what I want to ask you. Uh, You guys can both interact with this because isn't it the case that the listeners probably, but we at least are surprised by the father's treatment of the older son. And we are at the same time irritated by the elder son response. I think we can all agree with that. Does this not then make you and me in our irritation with the older son and our surprise at the father, like the Pharisees and scribes in Luke 15, 1 to 2, so that in the end, we get subverted by this parable because we expect the wrong thing of the elder son?
2: It's a great question. I I think that we have, a, just as you pointed out, we have this, this understanding of of Jesus and God that, that makes us really love the first part of the story. Um, and Josh and I were actually talking about this parable the other day, and we were talking about how you know, it's it's so often the case that we probably land in the camp of being more like the older son, uh, and it, I. Th- one of the reasons why I said I find this last section of the parable, verses thirty-one and thirty-two, so incredibly powerful, is that uh, like there is there is a a redemption and an invitation into the joy even for uh, the son who is resentful the one that wants, you know, justice and not mercy. Um, And I just find that so incredibly beautiful. I think,
1: Austin, you're right. But at the same time, I think when you say that we're more like the elder son, that that, that's a powerful confession of what this parable actually does, Mm -hmm. is that Mm -hmm. we're all pretty happy with the, the younger son. We just think that's awesome in some ways. Now, there would be people like the Pharisees and scribes stereotyped in the, in the parable, that they're irritated by this kind of behavior of the father. Uh, yeah. But they should also be, uh, they, should, they should be, uh, they should see themselves in the older son. But we who sit back and like the first part, then have become in many ways like the second part. Uh, mm-hmm. Instead of liking the second part, we unlike the second part. And in <laughs> so doing, we get subverted by the parable because we have become the Pharisees and the scribes that are stereotyped into the parable when we thought we were sitting in judgment on them. Because we think, see, they're just wrong and acting like this about the younger son. <laughs> and then we yeah. do the same thing with the older son. So I, yeah. think, I think that's one of the geniuses of this parable and uh it's it's the brilliance and and Austin you've you've hit it exactly right it's the it's the genius of the parables emphasis on the grace of god going in all directions yeah i Ross, think what happens
0: yeah. well, i think yeah. what happens there if i could just jump in is that those who identify and resonate with that begin to realize how much more they need god than they didn't know it in the first place and i think you know right. as i put myself in that role it's not that the the first son was lost more than the second son. They were both equally lost, equally invited to the celebration. And, um, and, and no matter where we are in our journey and who we are, maybe as we fit into that story, uh, we're given the opportunity, like you said, Austin, to experience the joy that the Father has for us. And that reliance on God because of that, I think is, man, is very powerful and hits me from this story.
1: Yeah the parable teaches uh, something about the older son uh, that i think i think we need to we need to bring into our world a little bit and that is there are many people who grow up in the christian church who uh, who, who in that sense uh, in the sense of this parable at least how the parable uses words were we never lost you know we all know stories. I grew up with people, uh, and I was sort of one of them, who grow up in a Christian home and then just have very little to do with it. Some of them go off to college and completely abandon Christianity and only later in their life turn back. Uh, But I think the older son represents something that uh, I became sensitive to when I was teaching college students at North Park, and that is I found covenant students, uh kids who grew up in the church, who said, you know, I really don't have any story to tell. I, I don't I never I never didn't go to church. I never disbelieved, I never was against God. Uh I responded to Jesus and loved him when I was a little girl or a little boy. And I, I've always I've always believed in him, and so I don't really have much of a story to tell. And I think in some ways uh, uh, they can become resentful toward the magnificent story of Chuck Colson or the magnificent story of some of these uh, Christians who have just harrowing experiences and then they became Christians. And we just, we stand up and clap when we hear these stories. We just think it's fantastic. And there are other people say, I don't have any story to tell. And they can become resentful toward those who get all the attention. And uh, I've seen this hundreds of times in my experience in churches. So I think there's something else there uh, that that brings it into our world is the resentment of those who have no story toward those who have an incredible story. And the strong affirmation of the Father, hey, you've been with me forever. Uh, you're welcome to the party as well. This party is for you, and I want you to enjoy their party. And that's a good reminder, I think.
3: Yep. And also sometimes the lack of a story like you were talking about is a story in itself. I was on a short-term mission trip in St. Petersburg, Russia in 2004, and we were teamed up and we were (laughs) going to talk to people that the churches had set up us to talk to. And we were with this one person, and the person I was with was sharing their testimony about how they were overcome addictions from drugs and alcohol. And the, the guy looked at her, and he was like, of course, of course you need God. You're you're a horrible person. Of course you need to <laughs> repent. And so I told my story how I grew up in the church, and he was like, now that is something I can believe in because you didn't need God, yet you turned to him anyway. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's,
1: a, that's turned it around, yeah. yeah that, that, <laughs> that, that's,
3: that's, uh, that's pretty good. Well, this
1: parable is, um, I think, just a, an incredible parable, I, and I wanted to um, read something. Josh, early when you were uh, interpreting the parable, you brought up you brought up a little bit about the father, and uh, and I wanted to read a text from Sirach, uh, a, Jew, a contemporary or or something in the Jewish context of of. What makes this parable have some um, resonance in the Jewish world? In Sirach 33, we read this. And this is all about um, a father dispensing his inheritance early, which is extraordinarily unlikely. In fact, I think most people who heard this story would have chuckled or at least thought that is one dumb father. Or Or it's an unwise, disrespectful father, a father without dignity and status and honor. This text from Sirach says, To son or wife, to brother or friend, do not give power over yourself as long as you live. And do not give your property to another in case you change your mind and must ask for it back. While you are still alive and have breath in you, do not let anyone take your place. For it is better that your children should ask from you than that you should look to the hand of your children at the time when you end the days of your life in the hour of your death, distribute your inheritance. But what I, what I notice from this now, there's no way to say this is the way every father thought, but this is a, this is the standard expression of wisdom in the Jewish world that a father would distribute his inheritance at the hour of his death or late in his life. Well, this father evidently distributed his inheritance way too early. A son acts with hubris and asking for inheritance early, and the father unbelievably distributes a, uh, probably. I, this is the standard explanation. A third of his inheritance is that is that what you guys are reading? Yeah, uh, two ninths. Yeah, something, like, ninths. A, yeah, something yeah. like that to the to the younger son, and. The, the, this, would have, this would have set all the listeners on edge, imagining a world when fathers would do such a foolish thing, such a rash thing, such a risky thing. And yet the father's response to that is quite unusual in the parable because even though the son squandered it all, the father becomes forgiving. So this emphasizes, by reading this text from Sirach, it emphasizes that that uh, text uh, has resonance in the Jewish world. And though it is common, and this is common in uh, Jewish, uh, in Christian interpretation, to say that uh, the father running was an act of indignity, uh, Kenneth Bailey made this particularly clear. Uh, I think it could also be said that the father's action of running to meet his son was not unknown in the Jewish world. Probably it was very rare and startling to read that. But there is a much later text from the rabbis called Pesikta Rabati, that says, consider the parable of a prince who was away from his father, a hundred days journey away. His friends said to the father, nor to the son, return to your father. And he replied, I cannot, I have not the strength. Thereupon, his father sent words saying to him, come back as far as you can according to your strength and I will go the rest of the way to meet you. And then the, the rabbi says, so the holy one, blessed be he, says to Israel, return unto me and I will return unto you. And this is a commentary on Malachi chapter three, verse seven. So I think that the father's action uh, clearly was socially dishonorable and unusual, but that unusuality, I guess I can invent a word here, uh, was also used in the Jewish world to explain the love of the God of Israel for his people, even in the third and fourth century or later in rabbinic writings. So uh, this this could be seen as, it, it would not be seen as a typical Jewish move. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the parable of Jesus, but it was not—it uh, was not unheard of, probably, to have a father love like this and to stretch his dignity to include forgiveness of a son who had done something so drastic in abandoning in taking the inheritance early, and abandoning ship and f- running off to the far Gentile lands, wasting it all, feeding pigs, and then at the last thinking he can return. In God's and, and see if he can find the mercy of his father. So uh, I think that this, this parable teaches us to imagine a world in which God's grace knows no limits, that God's forgiveness reaches in all directions, and no matter how sinful a person has become, God can welcome that person back to the table and make something of them uh, with the rest of their life. And so that's that's the I think that is the world that Jesus wants us to imagine when we start thinking about the kingdom of God.
0: Absolutely, uh, Josh Austin. Any other closing thoughts before we wrap up today? Well, well I'm always.
2: Oh yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry.
3: All you Austin.
2: I was just thinking, Scott, while you were sharing that last part, that you know I I really agree with what you said that Jesus, is you know, he's saying imagine a world where. That this type of grace exists and I I just find that such a powerful uh, dynamic and paradigm um, especially in light of kind of what you asked me to share about with the elder son because in a lot of ways he's lost as well and uh, I just think that that's really redemptive and beautiful and yeah it's been a privilege to be here with you guys and yeah I've loved it. Yeah good good.
3: I'm more of a person that likes to Take something and apply it today. So um, <laughs> uh, I, think this parable, I think this parable has um, hugely missional overtones for us that God's ready to throw a party at any given moment for people coming back to him. And yes, there's work of the Holy Spirit within people's lives uh, now, now and today, but also we, we do play a part in that. Mm-hmm. So I think this parable is great that it gives us something to look forward to. That God's going to throw uh, the biggest rave that you you could ever think about when people come back to Him, and we play a we can play a part in that. So I think yep. that's that's huge for the church today. That God's just not oh yay another one came home. No, it's it's an exciting time where He's throwing out all the stops. Um, we're having a huge barbecue because someone finally came. Back to God, whether they've been with God before or they've never known Him, He rejoices equally. Hey, Josh, what the heck is a rave? <laughs> you wouldn't know. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's good. I, I think you're. I think. I think you're right, Josh. This does have uh, missional overtones, uh, and it is the missional overtones that God is gracious and forgiving. Uh, that we get to be a part of this missional activity of the uh, missional work of God in this world in offering grace and forgiveness to others. So uh, th- there's a lot to this parable. And it, it, there's a, this is the reason it's been the favorite parable of Jesus in the history of the church. You know, this is, this is a great story. But it, it has so many overtones, and uh, it's a joy to get to read it and to be reminded of its great truths of
2: grace.
0: Absolutely. Josh, Austin, thanks for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah,
2: it was great being here.
0: Right, And thank you to our listeners for joining us again this week. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation on a very famous um, parable and story of Jesus. And uh, we hope that you join us next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.